Well, welcome everybody. Y'all can take a seat and the children uh, can go back with Pastor Becky for our godly play curriculum, a special time with them today. And I just want to say hello. So I'm Pastor Chris. It's great to be with you today. I'm the lead pastor here at Table Life Church, and we've been having a wonderful Advent season. And as you can see uh, around in the room here, congregation, I don't know those of you who are worshiping online, maybe you're dressed up too, but we have some people that have gone all out in their Christmas sweaters for today. And if you're wondering why this, I am the blue light special. Remember those days, Kmart, those who are old enough to remember the blue light special. Um, I'm probably going to turn this off because I don't want to be too distracting up here, right? But we're going to have a common meal after the service today where we're going to have those who are wearing Christmas sweaters and would like to participate. We're going to have a little fun, a little competition there. But everybody is invited to join us for a meal that I'm really looking forward to, our Christmas meal together and going to be a fun time, a good good time to be together. And we're... um, Um, Just as we've talked about this morning already, we are in the fourth Sunday of Advent, so that's the four weeks that lead up to Christmas each year. It's a time of anticipation. It's historical. It goes all the way back to uh, the early church and this idea of, of especially Jesus' second coming, looking forward to that he's going to come back and make everything right. But also we celebrate his first coming and the arrival in Bethlehem and the nativity, which we'll, we will celebrate on Christmas Eve here on Friday. Well, we've been in this series, Illuminate, over these weeks. This is kind of the fourth episode installment of that. And um, as you can see, our room is adorned with lights. Some of us are adorned with lights. Your yards are adorned with lights. This idea of light shining in the darkness in a very dark time of year. The sun goes down at like, what, four o'clock? It's like, you know, you look outside, it's kind of crazy. It's a dark time of year, but yet we're reminded the light shines in the darkness. And, And kind of our core verse that we've taken from scripture in that is John 1, 5, and I invite you to say this with me as we've been doing each week. Ready? One, two, ready, go. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You all are well caffeinated today. I'm glad. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we've talked about these different uh, periods of darkness that we've seen in the story of Christmas, uh, as we've seen with, with Joseph and with Mary, and, and even after the birth of Christ, with these people, Simeon and Anna, who have been waiting literally their whole lives. They're, they're in their 90s. They've waited their whole lives to see the Christ child. Well, today we're going to talk about another specific part in the Christmas story. But first, I want you to watch this old favorite. All right, now, we're going to do this play, and we're going to do it right. Lucy, get those costumes and scripts and pass them out. Now the script girl will be handing out your parts. You're the innkeeper's wife. Do innkeeper's wives have naturally curly hair? Pigpen, you're the innkeeper. In spite of my outward appearance, I shall try to run a neat inn. Shermie, you're a shepherd. Every Christmas it's the same. I always end up playing a shepherd. Snoopy, you'll have to be all the animals in our play. Can you be a sheep? <laughs> How about a cow? How about a penguin? Yes, he's even a good penguin. Thank you. 
well, maybe bringing back some childhood memories there, but um, the, the story goes that the Peanuts characters, Charlie Brown included, are all part of this Christmas play, of course, as the Christmas special goes on. And uh, I want to ask you all a question. How many of you have ever participated in a Christmas pageant, whether uh, anybody have kids or grandkids that have been in a Christmas pageant or a Christmas play as well? Um, and maybe you were part of a church, maybe that had a Christmas pageant even on this very stage. Uh, it's a tradition often in the celebration of Christmas. Well, I remember growing up, um, I was brought up in the Catholic tradition, and uh, we didn't have Sunday school for kids. Well, they did, but they, we also had a, a class on Mondays that was kind of like our childhood discipleship, which was called CCD. Maybe you can relate if you've been there. If not, don't worry about that. But we had a little Christmas pageant that the teachers came together and put, to, put on um, every year. I kind of was thinking about this. I don't think anybody was like invited to this, because I don't even think I ever invited my parents to come and see that. Who knew? But um, every year we had to uh, come together and we had to put all these different classes of kids and we had to put on this little pageant. There was a reading of scripture and people were different characters. Well, uh, it wasn't including everybody, though. I think some of the kids were called to watch it. So I knew, though, I was smart enough that if I volunteered to be in the Christmas pageant, I could avoid at least three weeks worth of discipleship classes. So I volunteered for what was known as the choir in that situation. And believe it or not, I sang alternative lyrics to the Christmas carols that we were supposed to sing. It's a troublesome one in that sense. But because we're so many kids, maybe this was your situation too, we had to give everybody a role. We had to give everybody a role, everybody that wanted to participate. There weren't any tryouts in this situation. There, and of course, there could only be one Mary and one Joseph. We had three wise men in that case, even though biblically they didn't actually come to the stable. And, you know, there were never really three, but we had three. Um, and there were, there were shepherds. There were, as you saw Snoopy, there were the animals, the barnyard animals. We had all the little costumes. And I think as I was doing a little survey of different people who have been in Christmas patches, I think at some point churches started to make up characters that were not in the story starting to add them to Christmas pageants, but also nativity scenes. Uh, check these out. I uh, just want to put a couple pictures up. Who was, where was T-Rex? Where was Batman? You could be creative, right? Started to add these characters. And, and the next one, who knew? The cat making a home with Mary and Joseph. But, but a lot of times we would add characters to our stories and you'd have the, the penguin, as you saw. You'd have maybe the, the Christmas dog and cat, the mice, the chicken, the pets that are there. But of course we know that we weren't technically in the Christmas story. Well, there's also one character, one character that's usually celebrated and told, is also not in the Christmas story, though we may perceive him to be. And his name is the innkeeper, the innkeeper that you saw. I think it was Pigpen who was elected to be the innkeeper in the Peanuts cartoon. Well, the, but the idea for the innkeeper, and I hate to burst anybody's bubble, but there's no innkeeper in the story. There's really no innkeeper. But the idea comes from Luke's version of the story, from the, uh, the gospel of Luke. And so today we're going to zero in on what happened to Mary and Joseph when they got to Bethlehem. So I'm going to look at Luke chapter chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 here. 
And this is also printed in your worship guide. You can take that home with kind of follow along with the message, whether you're worshiping online or also here. So Luke 2. So at that time in the Roman Emperor, Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea. David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because, why? Because there was no inn available for them. That's where we get that, right? No, most of us have heard this before we read it in church just about every year. And so the story goes, Mary and Joseph, they're in Nazareth. Nazareth is about 90 miles to get to Bethlehem. And so, of course, imagine after such a long journey, especially with a pregnant woman, it would probably be a time that you were very, very tired and hungry and arriving. And lo and behold, they arrive in Bethlehem. And what is the news There's no room for you. There's no place to stay. So it's not completely crazy that we made up this character of the innkeeper, this dude. But if you think about it, how do we usually think of the innkeeper? How do we usually think of him? Well, he's kind of like the villain in the story, right? It's like he knock, knock, knock. And he opens the door and kind of peers out. Usually he's kind of like the crotchety old man, peers out into the darkness, sees Mary and Joseph, and is like, there is no room for you in the inn, right? That's how we kind of picture him. He's kind of like the bad guy. If there should be a villain in this story, he's been woken up from his sleep, he's grumbling, and then what does he do? Slams that door, right? That's kind of what we imagine. But this isn't actually fair to the person that would have been kind of like an innkeeper at the time. And if you really study the passage, we really have gotten the character all wrong. We really have gotten the character all wrong. Because we have to start with the word in. Start with the word in. Because when I say the word in, what do you usually think about? comes to my hotel, right? Motel 6, you know, the Radisson, Hilton. We have some folks here that work in the hotel industry. You get it. But that's not what it meant. That's not what this word in that we interpret. It's actually the Greek word. It's in your notes. It's, it's kataluma, the Greek word kataluma. But it doesn't actually mean hotel, especially not in Jesus's time. It actually means guest room, It means guest room or the bedchamber of a private home. And we have a picture. This is kind of what the setup looked like at the time. This is a normal peasant house in the time of Jesus. And so what happened was Mary and Joseph probably went to a relative in Bethlehem because everybody's going back home for the holidays. That's what they're told. You know, the taxes are going to be collected. There will be a census that's taken. Everybody goes home for the holidays. And they went to the home of a relative, and it was a modest Jewish home. And you see in the picture that basically the guest chambers are in the second story. 
the guest chambers. There was kind of a place where people slept. They slept on mats. They didn't have beds and, you know, uh, what is it, the mattress firm and all the special kinds of mattresses that we had. They had little mats that they set up. And then there was an area for the guests, one or two guest chambers. And so people stayed with people that they knew, but there was also an area that was kind of like the multi-purpose room of the house, the den. And that was in the downstairs area. And in the den was also where they would, they brought in animals at night and kind of had them staged over to the side. But the innkeeper, the innkeeper, we're gonna do this uh, italics here, the innkeeper was probably a relative. The per- you think of the innkeeper as the person who Mary and Joseph would have first interacted with in their house, was probably a relative. And likely at the point that they had arrived in Bethlehem, the guest space upstairs had probably already been taken. Everybody already had their mats all rolled out. Somebody was already dozing off in the corner and snoring, right? All of this was actually happening. But the innkeeper, believe it or not, it's it's kind of a reverse of what we usually think. This person was actually the person who made space for Mary and Joseph. Made space for them. Instead of sending them away, as some of our interpretations of the story, sending them away, instead, he or she offered their multi-purpose room to this pregnant couple. They offered them space. And also, contrary to the uh, nativity scene that we usually have, too, most likely there were family midwives that were ready to help Mary deliver this child. She wasn't alone just with Joseph in a corner somewhere. Uh, Many people were probably, some of the family probably remained distant because they knew that if they touched a pregnant woman, there are kind of all these Jewish rules about that. They'd be unclean. They wouldn't be able to go to work and whatnot. But This is all part of that story. The story says that they were set up in this special room. And what's interesting is in in Luke 2, 7, Luke chapter 2, verse 7, the same word, that word cataluma, the same word that's used there, also appears later in Luke, in Luke 22, 11, as the location which Jesus celebrates his last supper. Full circle here, from beginning to the end. So this means that this innkeeper person, this family member, is a person who is far from that indifferent character who turned them away. It's actually somebody who, late at night, with a packed house for the holidays, made more room. Does that change the way you see the situation? Does that change the way that this is a person who showed hospitality, by making room, who took effort and sacrifice to welcome Jesus literally into their home. See, friends, God with us means that God is always making room and preparing a place for us. But we, we in turn, we have to make room for God. We have to make room for him in our lives And also make room for others in our lives and our homes. That there's a connection that that we sang about earlier. That that God so loved the world that we, we love him back. But there's also this horizontal component that we love our neighbor as ourself. 
The, the word hospitality, very interesting, is, is related. It has the same roots as the words hospice and hospital and even a hotel. And it's written in a, Latin, in a Latin word meaning shelter for strangers or those in need. So I was thinking about what, what it's like 2,000 years later after this story and how do we offer room to others? How do we offer hospitality to others? Because it's easy to outsource it, right? We do have the Marriott. We do have the Hilton. We have the Holiday Inn and Motel 6. We, it's a lot of work to prepare to. There, there's also um, different places that we go out to eat, right? We can go out and get different food. It's a lot of work to prepare to welcome someone. And if we're really honest, we admit that it doesn't come easy to many of us because t- making room takes effort. So, so I've been reflecting on this idea of making room and, and specifically in these two levels, these two levels, what does it mean for us to make room for Christ and also for others in our lives? See, Advent is a season that's dedicated to us, uh, uh, dedicated to us for making room for Jesus specifically to dwell in our lives. But what does it mean to make room? What does God illuminate in this story? Well, the first thing I think he indicates is that making room means decluttering. Making room means decluttering. Well, you know this, if you ever have uh, or have had a teenager and maybe had guests from out of town come in to stay the weekend or for a holiday or whatever. And of course, what do you do? You kick the teenager out of their room. But first, you have to make the expedition into the room and figure out what's going on. It's kind of enter at your own risk in that room. Or maybe you're an empty nester and you have an extra room or maybe extra couple of rooms and it was supposed to become the guest room, right? But what did it become? It became a storage locker. You put all this stuff in there and the laundry and the piles and things. Things get naturally decluttered. I thought about this because I think it, it get, happens in our lives too, right? That we get busy, that there's so many obligations, there's tasks, there's, there's habits that form in our lives. And oftentimes that stuff is the stuff that cramps out space and time for Christ to reside in us. We wonder why we don't hear from God, and yet we have our schedules that are packed from 7 a.m. till 10 p.m. every single day with things to do. Decluttering. You know, we, we might, even in our relationships with others on that piece, you're talking to somebody, maybe even meeting for lunch or coffee. You ever been there and you're not even like really there with them? You're like somewhere else. You're like, you know, coming up with your list and things. You're kind of like nodding. There's kind of like the zombie version of you talking. You're, you're not really fully present. Maybe you've even been with family at that time and you're not really even fully present. You're never really in the moment. That might be the little flashing red light that, hey, some decluttering needs to go on here. And Advent is a way to recognize that. So question for you. What can you declutter from your life so you can be more fully present to God and to others? What can you, what do you need to declutter from your life? But also making room requires us to change our routine, 
requires us to change our routine. If you've had a house guest for any period of time, you know, especially if you have a, maybe a smaller house, you got to share bathrooms and that kind of thing, you know that, that you can't always do what your normal routine is. You got to be responsive and respectful. I remember when I had my college roommate uh, come to stay with me. And uh, we had one, I had one bathroom in the house. Of course, we had the share, and she had a little bit of a different routine. She, I'm more of an early bird. She's more of a night owl, and so she was with me a couple days, and you know, it just kind of throws you off a little bit. That we have to change our routine. We're creatures of habit. It's important to prepare, you know, to arrange that our schedule to create space physically, but also relational space. And I was thinking about how this is true in our lives, too, that Christ requires us to change our routine to connect with him. It's making it points in our day and our time to connect with him. It doesn't just happen. We might have to change our weekend routine in order to fully engage with the church community, or maybe even more regularly. We might have to put some things aside for a time. And maybe for some of us, maybe the pandemic actually changed that, too that it forced you a change in your routine and maybe you're still trying to figure out, well, what does this new routine mean? But, but how could you use that to create room for Christ? To spending time maybe reading scripture on a regular basis and worshiping with a church family or, or taking time just to be quiet and to be sit in prayer to ask God what he might be saying to you. How could a routine change help you make room for Christ. But also he shows us that making room values relationships over projects and preferences. I don't know if we have any listers here. Anybody like you make lists on a daily basis, maybe uh, like five times a day. You make it in your phone, you have it on your like sticky notes, you have it in a binder, whatever you do. Uh, you know, you have so many things to do, a task list, right? Ever find yourself like running over people to get your task list done? Yeah, yeah, I do that. I do that even with me, like there's sometimes notes and lists everywhere and I'm just like, okay. You know, I'll even add things to my list just so I can check them off, things that I've already done makes me feel a little bit better, but, but sometimes, sometimes tasks get in the way. Sometimes tasks get in the way because they, they, once again, don't allow us to focus on the most important things, the people in front of us. God, who might be wanting to speak to us. Sometimes you have to set aside those tasks and realize that you are not going to get everything done on your list, but this person or this time with God is more important. Sometimes it restricts that ability to get tasks done. But isn't that what hospitality often is? Isn't it offering? You know, you, you honestly, most of us, we don't realize what's going on in someone's life when there's a situation or a conversation that begins. Maybe it's even a stranger, somebody that you don't know that maybe God's put in your path. And your, your inclination is to go back to your task list, you know, kind of blow them off. You know, it's okay, we'll talk to you later, that kind of thing. Um, it struck me, uh, I guess it was last week, I read a recent article that came out that stated that any one time, believe this, any one time, at any one time, one third of the people you encounter are lonely. 
A third of the people that you encounter on a daily basis are lonely. Friends, non-friends, strangers, the gal at the checkout, the waiter or waitress are lonely. And there's actually something that's called holiday heart syndrome. Found out this too, holiday heart syndrome. It happens in the time between November and January when the heart responds to loneliness because it's around this time that you see so many people that are getting together that don't seem lonely and you feel like you are the only one. It actually can become so severe that it causes heart attacks and can put people in hospitals. See, around Christmas time, when major life changes occur, maybe you've encountered this, the loss of a loved one or maybe a divorce, maybe you're wrestling through grief that's been going on for, for a long time. It's that loneliness during the holidays that can often make it very difficult to feel cheerful. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to share with you a couple of stories here. A couple of anonymous stories that were submitted um, just last year. Uh, or I'm sorry, I was actually pre-pandemic, so 2019. Um, this was from Joe, age 69. This was submitted on a website about loneliness. Um, he says, I think I've felt lonely throughout my life, and I'm truly alone except for my dog. Christmas puts me every, Christmas guts me every year. I already accept that there won't even be a phone call for me. I've already bought a pre-cooked meal and a slice of pie. My evening walk with the dog takes my soul every year. For curtains are open into living rooms full of families and friends. I can hear them, sometimes smell their turkey dinners. But most of all, I feel their happiness knowing I'll never have it. I get home and get into bed and cry and hope that the day will just go away with sleep. That was from Joe, age 69. This is from Harper, age 40. My mom died just after Christmas back in 2005. And ever since, my dad doesn't celebrate the holiday. I'm an adult now, but not close enough to my mom's family to ask to spend Christmas with them. And my dad's family is too far away to visit. I always end up working on Christmas to distract myself and make money, but it's definitely a hard time for me. It makes me feel very lonely to see people spending time with family, but I try to get busy and get over with it. I just tell people I'm a Grinch when they ask why I don't celebrate the holiday. But one day I do want to be with someone or somebody and have a tree and a dinner and the whole shebang. Harper, age 40. And this is a one from AJ, age 21. Last year, I spent Christmas alone. My mom was with her husband and his family. My dad was at his girlfriend and her family. My older siblings were with their significant others, and I spent Christmas Eve and Christmas Day by myself. No one called me. No phone calls. And just this is the last one. Grace, age 55. I don't really have any family close by or alive, and my husband has health issues. I take care of him. Nobody really knows that I'm lonely, as I try to look happy and thankful. I guess it's my fault for not reaching out, but something inside me is just afraid to, or that there's something wrong with the two of us. I'll probably just buy one of those heat-up dinners from the grocery store for us, and I'll just read my book on Christmas Day just so it goes by quicker. Friends, these are real people, real stories, and I bet you know probably each one of them. You might not even know it. See, most of us don't realize what one invitation can do. Setting aside our routine and priorities and the things that we think to be able to make room for someone, especially at this time when things can really, really hurt. There's a, there's a little story that's going around now about even welcoming grief at your table 
at the holidays. And I think it's really important for us to realize and to welcome someone's grief along with them, however they need to feel or act, but to let that, that they are not alone. And that's why uh, today we're going to offer the, a bunch of these to you. We have a whole stack of them. This is for Christmas Eve, an invitation that I'm going to encourage everyone to take some. Uh, you don't know who's spending Christmas alone that might just need an invitation. Join us at church. Invite to sit with you to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to stand outside or we're going to have an outdoor service. I'm going to wait for you and we can sit together. Uh, what would it take for you to make room at your table this Christmas for a Harper or a Grace or a Joe or an AJ? To make room for someone, to, to get to know someone, to realize that maybe, maybe you know, all the, the things, maybe you're on the mountaintop right now and things are going really well, but what would it take to make room to welcome someone else in? Because the truth is, most of us don't have those deep, strong relationships. There's this thing that I call the refrigerator test, and you might ask yourself the same question. Do you have at least one person in your life or even a family in your life, that it wouldn't be weird if they walked into your house and you're talking to them and they opened up your refrigerator. It's a great way to test, do you have deep relationships or are a lot just at the surface? See, it's the same thing also with our faith, right? It's true of our faith that sometimes in our rush, we neglect our relationship with Christ. Not that Christ is lonely by any means, but that we let all these other things and plans and our happiness and pursuit of that, and believe this, that 55% of people in the United States will make no mention of Jesus on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. There's so many people that might celebrate Christmas, but so many things have pushed Jesus out of the way. And sometimes that can be frustrating for some people. Others of us, it's just, it's an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity to say, hey, this is what the, we're celebrating here. There's so much more than the Santas and the bells and the trees and the beautiful lights. There's something deeper. There's something eternal here. Because even if, even if the world does not welcome him, we still know the light shines in the darkness. The darkness does not overcome it. Thomas Merton, a great writer, um, once said this. He said, into this world, this demented inn, in which there is absolutely no room for him at all, Christ comes uninvited. So what tasks, what tasks are getting in the way of you connecting with others and with Jesus this season, of opening up your, your life, your table, your doors, an invitation to, to church, even somebody that's like, ah, church really isn't my thing. Hey, come and, come and join us outside. Like, like Ben and Jen are going to sing a couple songs and Maddie, um, and we're going to have some candles. Like, you never know what God might do. But the last point here is that making room, it does require intentionality. It entails intentionality. It doesn't just happen. And I remember um, a number of years ago, I was, when I was living in Virginia, I was invited to um, attend this conference that was in Washington, D.C. And at the time, I was teaching college, as a college biology. I was um, an adjunct professor, and we had a night class. And I remember after that class was over, some of the time after like 9.30 at night, I drove from Virginia about an hour or so into D.C. to this location of this conference. And the nice thing was they were going to like put me up. 
that I was offered a place, but I didn't quite know where that place would be. And the conference was held at this like this conference center, but they had lodging as a part of that in these like bunk rooms. It was kind of like a, camp, a little bit of a campy type thing. So I showed up, it's probably around like 10.30, almost 11 o'clock at that time and check in. And once again, I had no idea where I was going to stay, but uh, it turned out that I was put in a room, a bunk room with four beds, two bunks with three other women. And it was around 11 o'clock and I walk in with my little bag and open up the door. And of course, what? Everybody's asleep, right? These three people, they're complete strangers. I didn't know them. They didn't know me. And I walk in and which bed did they save for me? That top bunk, that top bunk. And get this, no offense to anybody, below a snorer. Someone who was sawing wood, right? Just out of it. Nothing says welcome, welcome to, to join us like saving the top bunk for somebody, right? But, but isn't that interesting? Like usually uh, in our lives, don't we usually give God what's left over, right? It's like, yeah, God, if I got a top bunk, you can like stay there in my life. Like you can take this little part of, of me. You can have this, but, but we have to be intentional, right? We have to be intentional or else something or something else will always fill in. And it's the same thing with our relationships with other people. It doesn't just happen. Making room means being intentional. So this Christmas, we kind of wrap things up today. Story of the right, the, the innkeeper who actually opened up their home and offered hot, radical hospitality to this couple. This Christmas, will you make room? It's a simple question. Will you make room? Will you make room for, for God, first of all? Will you allow him to come into your life? Will you, uh, allow, will you give him time to, to nurture that relationship with you? Will you be intentional about that? Because what I want you to do is to remember that non-innkeeper, the one who made room, to allow that to be a challenge. What will we do as a family, as a couple, as a single person? What will we do to make room for Christ or maybe someone in need, someone we can invite, even if it means not getting everything done, even if it means not being perfect or having the perfect Christmas, even if it means reaching out and taking a risk and inviting someone or offering to sit together because, believe it or not, in doing so, you make, make room for God to do something radical, to illuminate something that he has never before. Because that, after all, is what he's in the business of doing. When we make room for him, of course, he has already made room for us, but when we make room for him, we allow his light to shine. And of course, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has never overcome it.